Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words we read in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, and reading again at verse 1. Where we read, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. One of my favourite films is the, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Say very different to the usual period dramas that I get a lot of abuse and stick for, for watching. And in the film, Governor Crittenden is in conversation with Robert Ford. And he says to him, Jesse James is nothing more than a public outlaw who has made his reputation by stealing whatever he could and by killing whoever got in his way. You'll hear some fools say he's getting back at Republicans and Union men for wrongs his family suffered during the war, but his victims have scarcely been selected with reference to their political views. I'm saying his sins will soon find him out. I'm saying his cup of iniquity is full. I'm saying Jesse James is a desperate case and may require a desperate remedy. This evening we're looking at a similar desperate case, this man Belshazzar, and the day when his sins found him out, the day when his cup of iniquity was filled to the full. We're going to look at this chapter under two headings, a charade of feasting and then a change of fortune. A charade of feasting and then a change of fortune. First you have a charade of feasting. Look at verses 1 to 12 where the author focuses on the king of Babylon's judgment on the Lord of heaven. The king of Babylon's judgment on the Lord of heaven. In verses 1 to 4 the author draws our attention to the debauchery. We can begin by noting the feast in verse 1. Right away we're introduced to this king called Belshazzar. He was co-regent of the Babylonian empire with his father Nabonidus. He is presiding over a kingdom that is very much in decline. It is fading in size, fading in significance, fading in stature. But he isn't simply presiding over a kingdom that is in decline. He is also presiding over a kingdom that was divided. He had already lost a good deal of support from his leading politicians and military generals. And it's at this point that we read about Belshazzar throwing a great feast for a thousand of his lords. It's very much a case of him burying his head in the sand. He is attempting to convince himself and everyone else, all the influential politicians, all the civil servants, that, that the kingdom is as invincible as ever, that, that everything is fine. We can move from noting the feast to noting the foolishness in verses 2 down to 4. Belshazzar is in high spirits and he commands that vessels of silver and gold that his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in. These were holy objects that had been used in the worship of Israel's God. When Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had carried these objects off to Babylon and placed them in the treasury of his gods. It was a political statement saying Judah is defeated, Jerusalem is defeated, but it was also a theological statement where he was saying the God of Judah and the God of Jerusalem has been defeated. And now Belshazzar brings these objects in so that his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
But he goes further as he uses these sacred holy vessels to toast the gods of gold, the gods of silver, the gods of bronze, the gods of iron, the gods of wood, and the gods of stone. This is a feast where the honour of Israel's God has been trampled on, the name of Israel's God is being profaned. And it's been profaned and trampled on by this man, Belshazzar, who is saying there is no God. He is shaking his tiny, puny face, fist in the face of Israel's God. Then in verses 5 down to 9, the author moves from the debauchery to the disturbance. While the people are drinking, there is a sudden and strange revelation. Look at verse 5. The fingers of a human hand immediately appear. And they begin to write on the wall of the plaster of the palace. And the king sees this taking place. And we see the king's reaction to that revelation in verse 6. His colour changes. His thoughts alarm him. His limbs give way. That is a very strange expression. Um, Dr. Robert will be able to tell us it's a Hebrew, Aramaic kind of idiom to say that the king soiled himself. That is how nervous, that is how frightened he is and his knees knock together. And having seen the king's reaction, we hear him offering a reward to anyone who can explain what that means. Look at verses 7 and 8. He calls for the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the, the astrologers. And once these wise men are standing before him, he offers a reward to any of them who can read and interpret the writing. They will be clothed in purple, the colour of royalty. They will be presented with a golden chain for their necks, the insignia of high rank. They will be given the position of third ruler in the country, just after Belshazzar and his father Nabonidus. But none of these wise men are able to help the king. We're told they can't read the writing, and because they can't read the writing, they can't interpret it. The inability of these wise men leaves the king alarmed. His colour is changed, and his lords look on perplexed. And it's at that point that the author draws their attention away from this disturbance to the direction in verses 10 and 11. The queen makes an appearance, verse 10. It's most likely that this is actually the queen mother, since the king's wives and concubines have gathered at the feast. And so the queen mother now enters the hallway. And after entering the banqueting hall, she proceeds to offer some advice to her son. Look at verses 10 and 11. She expresses her wish that he would live forever. It's very ironic that she says this, as we'll see later on in the chapter. She tells him not to let his thoughts alarm him or his colour change. She tells him that there is a man in the kingdom who can help. He is a man who is the spirit of the holy gods. He is a man who possesses light and understanding and wisdom in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a man who was made chief of the magicians, chief of the enchanters, chief of the Chaldeans, chief of the astrologers because of his excellent spirit his knowledge and his understanding. He is a man who went by two names, the name Daniel, but also the name Belteshazzar, Hebrew name Daniel, Babylonian name Belteshazzar. And he's a man, the Queen says, who can be called on this particular occasion because he will be able to interpret the writing. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been given a picture of how people will often respond how people will often behave in a crisis. We can see that people will often distract themselves in a crisis. That's what we see in Belshazzar. There's his kingdom and it's declining. And not only is it declining, it's divided. 
and Belshazzar responds by throwing a great feast. He distracts himself and his lords and his wives and his concubines with an alcohol-fueled party, with, a, with what we might call today a drinking session. He is essentially fiddling while Rome is burning. And the same is true today. The world's in crisis. Scotland's in crisis. The UK's in crisis. If for some reason you're sitting here tonight thinking, I don't think the world's in crisis, I don't think the UK and Scotland are in crisis, might I respectfully ask you the question, where on earth have you been the last two years? And so many people will do all that they can to distract themselves and deafen their ears and divert their eyes to what is really going on. They might turn to alcohol. They might turn to pornography. They might turn to nights out. They might turn to family get-togethers and gatherings. They might turn to lavish holidays. They might turn to a bit of retail therapy. They might turn to endless hours on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever other social media there is. They might turn to endless streaming services. You only need to see how much people are complaining these days because Netflix prices are going up and up and up. They'll try anything and everything to distract themselves from the crisis that is going on, to desensitize themselves to what is really going on. But we can also see that people will often dismiss God in a crisis. Again, that's what we see in Belshazzar. There's his kingdom, declining, divided. But instead of seeking the living God, he dismisses him as irrelevant. He drinks from his holy vessel, showing how little respect, how little regard, how little reverence he has for him. And the same is true today. The world's in crisis. The UK and Scotland are in crisis. And so many people will be very quick to dismiss the living God as the crisis goes on. In his book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells speaks about the weightlessness of God. And he writes, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the, adverti- and than the adverti- advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is the condition we have assigned him after having nudged him out to the periphery of our secularised life. Weightlessness tells us nothing about God, but everything about ourselves, about our condition, about our psychological disposition to exclude God from all reality. And you know, friends, I don't think anything sums up the Western world better than this, than the idea that God is weightless. That God can be ignored. That God can be just dismissed. I don't think anything sums up Hollywood sums up Westminster, and you know, sadly, friends, even sums up the people of Stornoway and Lewis than the idea that God is weightless and can be dismissed because if people took him seriously, this building would be filled. And if people took him seriously, Kenneth Street would be filled. And if people took him seriously, Martins would be filled. 
And if people took him seriously, the three Presbyterians would be filled. And the Sanwick Continuing Church would be filled. But they're not filled because the people in this town are saying he can be dismissed. He can be ignored. He can be pushed to the periphery. So as we think about this, friends, I simply want to ask the question, how, friend, are you responding to the crisis moments? It might be a global crisis or it might be a personal crisis. But how are you responding to the crisis moments that you are seeing, that you are facing, that you are going through? Poor Belshazzar ends up responding to them by distracting himself and dismissing God. What are we doing? But we move from a charade of feasting to a change of fortune. Look at verses 13 down to 30. The author now focuses not on the king of Babylon's judgment on the God of heaven, but the Lord of heaven's judgment on the king of Babylon. In verses 13 to 16, the author draws their attention to Belshazzar's description of his problem to Daniel. Daniel is brought before the king. And the king opens with a put down. Look at verses 13 and 14. He begins by reminding Daniel that he is one of the exiles whom his father brought back from Judah. That is all Daniel is. He's a captive. He's a member of a conquered people. The king's saying, look at who you are. The king goes on and says that he has heard that the spirit of the gods is in him and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in him. He is making it clear that he has heard about Daniel But he doesn't know if what he has heard about Daniel is true. Furthermore, he leaves all that his mother had said about Daniel being made chief of the magicians, chief of the enchanters, chief of the Chaldeans, chief of the astrologers by Nebuchadnezzar. He just leaves that out of the picture. He's not going to promote this character in any way. But having put down Daniel, Belshazzar presents his problem to him. Look at verses 15 and 16. He tells him that none of the wise men have been able to read or interpret the writing on the wall. He tells him that he has heard that he is able to give interpretations and solve riddles. And he tells him that if he is able to read this writing and interpret this writing, he'll be rewarded. He'll be clothed in purple. He'll be presented with a golden chain. He'll be given the position of third ruler in the kingdom. In verses 17 down to 28, the author records Daniel's denunciation of Belshazzar. Daniel responds with a word of indictment. Look at verses 17 down to 23. He tells the king that he can keep his gifts and rewards. Daniel's not going to be bought by the king. Daniel's interpretations will not be bought by the king. He continues by speaking about Belshazzar's predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. The Most High God gave him a kingdom, gave him greatness, gave him glory, gave him majesty. He was feared by rulers, feared by nations, feared by kingdoms as one who could kill and keep alive, one who could humble and one who could raise up. But his heart was lifted up and his spirit became proud and so he was brought down from his earthly throne. He was, his glory was taken away. He was humbled and driven away as he became like a wild animal until he realized that the Most High God is the God who rules the kingdoms of mankind. And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 4. Having spoken about Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel goes on to speak about Belshazzar. Though. Look at verses 22 and 23. He tells him that he, Belshazzar, knew all this. 
knew all that had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And despite knowing all of this, he had lifted up his hand against the Lord of heaven. He had lifted himself up by drinking from his holy vessels, lifted himself up by praising his false gods, and lifted himself up by refusing to honour the breath-giving God. It's a solemn indictment. It's a severe indictment. And things go from bad to worse as Daniel proceeds to give the word of interpretation. Look at verses 24 to 28. Daniel begins by saying that his hand, this hand, was sent from the presence of the Lord of heaven. He continues by saying that the hand inscribed four words. Many, many, tekel, parson. And having read these words, which none of the other interpreters were able to do, having read these words, Daniel then interprets what they mean. Many means that the Lord has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom and determined their end. A tekel means that the Lord has weighed Belshazzar's life and found him wanting. Perez means the Lord has divided up Belshazzar's kingdom and has given it to another, to the Medes and to the Persians. In short, the king has been celebrating while on the brink of disaster, the brink of doom, the brink of destruction. And the author concludes by drawing our attention to the destruction in verses 29 to 31. The author knows the king's reward. Verse 29, Daniel is clothed in purple, provided with a golden chain, proclaimed to be third ruler in the kingdom just after Belshazzar and his father. The king doesn't want to lose face before his lords, his wives and his concubines by not rewarding Daniel for what he had done. And Daniel receives it because he is not seeking a reward himself for giving the king a prophecy he wanted to hear, but rather giving the king a prophecy that he needed to hear. The author then notes, after the king's reward, the king's ruin, verses 30 and 31, Daniel told the king that his days had been numbered. Daniel told the king that he had been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Daniel told the king that his kingdom would be divided and taken away, given to another. But you know, Daniel hadn't told the king when any of that would take place. And in some ways, that was a mercy for Belshazzar. But the author tells us that that very night, Belshazzar was killed. And Darius Samid, also known as Cyrus the Persian, received the kingdom. (laughs) It almost gives the impression, doesn't it, that that these Persians were just outside the walls of the city. And there's Belshazzar and he's having a party. But the party is now well and truly over. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given a very powerful revelation of the Most High God. A powerful revelation of the Lord of Heaven. First, the Lord of Heaven is absolute. He is the one who numbers the days of every kingdom, every king, every life. He had numbered the days of Belshazzar and numbered the days of his mighty Babylonian empire that seems stronger than the the empires of the United Kingdom, the empires of Russia, the empires of the United States, the empires of China. He had numbered these days. And he's numbered your days, friends. And he's numbered my days. He has appointed the birthday and the death day of every single person in this room. Our days have been written in his book and we are not going to breathe one second longer than he has determined 
than he has ordained. You are not going to breathe one second longer than the Lord decreed before eternity began. The Lord of heaven is a God who is absolute. The second, the Lord of heaven assesses. He's the one who weighs the life of every person who has ever lived. He weighed, he assessed the life of Belshazzar. And he's weighing, he's assessing your life and he's weighing and assessing my life. He's the one who sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is concealed from him. He sees everything. There are some things that we would love other people to know about us. There are things I would love some of you to know about me. And I'm sure there are things that some of you would love that I knew about you. But the Lord of heaven knows the things that we try and cover up. He sees behind the motives. Behind the masks. Behind the movements. And he makes a judgment. The Lord of heaven is a God who assesses. And third, the Lord of heaven acts. He's the one who eventually says enough. He had been incredibly patient with this man, Belshazzar. He had given him time to repent, given him time to turn his life around, given him time to humble his heart, but now he acts and he divides Belshazzar's kingdom, gives it to another, and the life of Belshazzar is taken from him that very night. And he's the one who continues to say enough. Time is up in response to the ongoing defiance and rebellion of every man and every woman. Friends, he is a God who is patient. He is a God who pities. He is a God who delights in pardoning. He is a God who has provided, as Jodo touched on in his prayer, a full and free salvation for anyone, anyone, anyone who will humble themselves and come to him, But eventually he says, time is up. You've had your chance. You've had your opportunities. It's judgment day. The Lord of heaven is a God who acts. And so friends, as we consider these verses, we can see that a proper response to the Lord of heaven is required from each of us. This passage presents us with a a very clear warning Listen to Daniel's words to Belshazzar in verses 22 and 23. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. Daniel says that to the king, but listen to what he says just before. Verse 22. Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Belshazzar had had every opportunity to humble himself before the Most High God, to humble himself before the Lord of heaven, but he had deliberately and defiantly and decisively refused to do so. And on the 11th of October, 539 BC, he was swept from time into eternity. He was cast into hell. And the fearful thing, friends, is that he has been there ever since. He has been there with nothing but the memory of his party. And every missed opportunity, 
Every chance that he had. And I don't doubt for one moment tonight that he is there and he is thinking, if only I could have just one out of my life in this world back again, 15 minutes in this world back again, I would repent and I would turn to the Lord, I would humble myself before him, but it's too late. It's too late. And that is the sobering warning that's given to every reader of this solemn chapter. I don't know of any words more tragic than these in all of Scripture. You knew all this, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of Heaven. Friends, you can know all about the Lord of Heaven. You can know all about the Most High God. You can know all about the God who holds your breath in His hand. You can know that He's the God who's absolute. You can know that He's the God who assesses. You can know that he's the God who acts. And you know, friends, you can know all this and still be lost. The caverns of hell are filled with people who sat through numerous conversations, numerous wakes, numerous funerals, numerous church services where they heard the gospel of grace. They heard about the Lord's patience. They heard about the Lord's pity. They heard about the Lord's pardon. They heard about the Lord's provision for salvation in Jesus Christ. They knew all this. But they didn't humble their hearts. That is a tragedy. And so this evening I simply want to put a direct question to every single person who is in this room. And who is listening online. I hope to be back in two weeks' time, but I often think when I go away on these trips, what if I don't come back? What if something happens to me? Maybe it's just me and my glasses half full mindset, but I do think, what if this was the last sermon that the high fee ever heard from me? This evening, I want to put a question to every single one of you here tonight and listening online. How are you responding to all of this? Have you humbled your heart, friend, before the Lord of heaven? who would have mercy even on the likes of Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't it amazing that he would have mercy on Nebuchadnezzar who burned his temple and carried off his vessels of gold into the temple of his own gods? You're humbling yourself before such a God, friend. Or are you still, still lifting up yourself against him like Belshazzar?